We have the privilege of going back into the Gospel of Mark today, continuing from last week where Jesus commissioned his disciples with warnings and caution of danger to come and abandonment and hard hearts before them to take nothing but what they need, but to go with the message and authority of Christ. And so this week, we're kind of in this interesting interlude between, well, what happened to the disciples that were sent out last week to what's going to happen when they come back, which will be preached next week. And on that note, I wanted then to kind of connect that as a parallel to even where our church family is at now, because last week we sent out two teams. This week we saw them leave. The first team is our YSMP team, that at this moment, as I stand here and speak to you, they are worshiping with the locals in the town of Winslow and in the town of White Cone. They've been there since yesterday. They've been setting up. They've been reaching out. They've been getting ready, and they will be active in both churches in their corporate worship to begin their mission. We sent them out last week. We look forward to hearing them come back next week. But meanwhile, we're in between, and we have the privilege of praying for them. This picture is actually from yesterday, where they were preparing to leave from the hub church, where they are sent, FCBC Phoenix. They have a gym just like us. They don't worship in their gym like us, but, you know, that makes us, you know, extra special. Um, But this is the team that we sent out, and they're there now. We want to be praying for them as they go to those two cities and as they serve and as they teach, as they minister, as they visit, as they pray, and as they lead. Here is the second team that we want to be praying for this morning as a part of our message, and that is the team that we sent to serve at Taiwan Mennonite Christian Hospital. So the team picture at the top is everyone. Uh, The team picture in the bottom of Sabrina and Angie, that was just sent to us over the weekend. And so they're there. They're serving. They're a little tired already because of the jet lag, but we want to be praying for them as they're getting ready for the ministry to come this week. This is a continuation of ministry that has been going on in the hospital, and so we want to pray for them as they lead Children's VBS, as they reach out to the people connected to the hospital this week, and as they have the opportunity to represent us and being sent out. See, we are here at home waiting, but we're also here at home with the ability to pray and to continue to be senders. So let's go ahead and pray together as we begin this time. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to experience what we're seeing in the Gospel of Mark, how you led your disciples, how you sent your disciples, how you gave them the most important thing of the authority to go and the message to bring. And Lord, that you sent them so that they could depend on you. We thank you, Lord, that that continues today, and we want to keep praying for the two teams that are on the field right now on behalf of FCBC Walnut. We pray, Lord, for the 30 members of our church that are on YSMP as they go and serve in the two sites of Winslow and White Cone with three other partner churches. We pray, Lord, for them as they are gathering right now in corporate worship at those churches. We pray, Father, that you bring refreshing, Lord, that you would allow our people to serve well, to build relationships, to connect with the locals, Father, so that it would create opportunities to share the gospel with them and minister to them later this week. We also pray, Lord, that we are an encouragement to them, God, that that we don't in any way take over what they are already doing, 
But Lord, we come alongside simply to support and to applaud and to encourage them in what you're already doing through them. We pray, Father, for unity. We pray for strength. We pray, Lord, for you to work out the details as a busy week of ministry is to come with VBS and sports camp, work projects, visitations. We thank you, Father, that our people, our loved ones can experience this together. We also want to pray, Lord, for our team that is sent out to serve at the Taiwanese Mennonite Christian Hospital. We pray, Lord, for them as they're getting ready also for the first days of ministry this week. As they're going to be there longer than the YSMP team, they're going to be there for two weeks. We just want to pray that you give them that physical endurance and that rest from the get-go, helping them to adjust to the jet lag that they must be experiencing. We pray, Lord, for good partnership and conversation. We pray, Father, for the opportunity to sow seeds of the gospel in word and in deed. And we also want to pray, especially for them, Lord, to endure and persevere and trust in you, especially since there's a typhoon warning coming in for this week. We know, Lord, that that's pretty normal for Taiwan, but it will definitely be an adjustment for our team. So we just want to pray, Lord, that they would serve with the joy of the Spirit, that they'd be prepared to do and to be who you have called them and given them the authority and the message to be. We thank you, Father, that they're not going alone, but that they are going on our behalf, that we have a church family that is sending them out as our own. So we pray, Lord, that as we are in this interlude in the Gospel of Mark 6, where the disciples are sent, and we will see what happens. Father, that you also prepare our hearts to welcome them back. Lord, we do want to pray, Lord, for the softness of our hearts as we come into your word today. Father, because oftentimes it's so easy for us to see, whether in the Gospels or even in our own lives, that maybe being disciple makers is the work of a few. But Lord, we know that you call all of us to carry that message, and you've given all of us in Christ with that authority to shake the world upside down, to preach the gospel that will set free people from enslavery to sin, to give them a true, vibrant life that is filled with joy and love that is eternal because of their part in the body of Christ and because of their belonging as a child of God. And so we pray, Father, that you will soften our hearts wherever it is that we are at with you at this time to open us to your word, to open us to your leading in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So today's message breaks up into two main parts, even though it is one big segment. The reason why is because there's a couple of characters that could capture our attention, and it's meaningful for us to make sure we always focus on the primary character that keeps with the flow of the narrative in the Gospel of Mark, that us back to Jesus where our attention belongs, but then also we don't miss that there's a secondary character for which there's a lot of applications that drive home for us, especially as the parallel continues, that the secondary character is the people in home, people staying behind while the disciples are going forth, obeying Christ, keeping their message ahead of them and just trusting him to provide in everything. And so the primary character we're going to see here is John the Baptist, because he is essential both to the work and to the narrative that leads to Christ and his work and his sacrifice and his ministry. But then secondarily, we're also going to look inside a little bit into the household of a particular king named Herod 
Antipas. And if you hear the word Herod over and over as you read the Gospels or many of the books in the Bible, it's because there's a lot of Herods. They're all unique and interesting ways. That's in and of itself a topic for study, how all the Herods connect to each other. But that's not for today. Uh, we'll, we'll work our way through to make sure we know which Herod we're talking about today. But we're going to look at an episode in his home, in his home life, that with and that allows us to really see, well, you know what? This call to follow Jesus in everything, it really begins in the most inner recesses of where we find ourselves, which is our heart and our home. So let's go ahead and begin by looking at the first three verses, starting from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 16. It's projected up there for you to see. You're also welcome to read in your Bibles, read along. I'll go ahead and read it for us. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Starting from verse 14, King Herod heard of it, and this is Herod Antipas, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So this first segment that we're going to see that continues the narrative after the disciples were sent out by Jesus is one that shows us the continuation of what is happening in the bigger picture story of Jesus himself. So the verse begins with, King Herod heard of it. And so naturally, you're thinking, what did he hear? Well, he hears what is happening all around as these six pairs of disciples are sent out with the message and the authority of Jesus to do his will. And so they're going two by two. You find this in verses 12 to 13. And they're going with the calling to preach this message of repentance and that they are in process along the way as God works, casting out demons and anointing people with oil, healing those that are sick and doing miraculous things. You see, this is something that has not been happening. Right before this, we saw that Jesus, even in his hometown, he found hard hearts, and so he chose not to perform many miracles, even though he did heal a few. And so this idea of, wow, this sending out of six teams going to all these different towns and villages, proclaiming this radical message of repentance and trust in the Messiah and the coming of the kingdom, while all of these spectacular things were happening around them, that is brand new. And it doesn't listen well. It doesn't sink in well to someone in a position of power like Herod. Now, just a brief overview then. Herod is one of the sons of Herod the Great, who is famous or maybe infamous for his involvement in baby Jesus's coming. Now, you hear the song that the nursery rhyme, the Bible nursery rhyme of Father Abraham has many sons. Well, Herod's got many sons and many daughters and, and many wives, and many of them have the same name. But this one is one of the sons, and he, at this point, is a tetrarch, which means after his father died, he is one of the rulers that rules over one quarter of the kingdom that his father had previously ruled. 
and covered two particular territories of Galilee and Perea. And if Galilee sounds familiar to the life of Jesus, it is, which is the reason why the news of people that are ambassadors in the name of Jesus doing amazing things, preaching a radical message, that's going to come into his year. So we don't know how the teams are doing, but we can know this. The fact that what Jesus is doing through them is becoming known, that means while we're still here waiting to see what the disciples' reports will be in anticipation, we already know that God is working through these teams. And even the connection to this with the teams that we've sent out to Arizona, the teams that we've sent out to Taiwan, is then the opportunities that we were able to catch up and engage a little bit over the weekend, even before ministry has begun, God is working. God is doing things to prepare them, to unite them, to solve problems, to help them persevere, to help them to work together. It's a beautiful thing to hear as it comes through the grapevine. I'm so thankful that it's so much easier to connect with people now with the technology that we have. But even though we haven't seen the disciples come back, we know this, Jesus' name is becoming known. Why? Because he has these missionaries, these faithful ambassadors of his message and authority that are simply in obedience doing great things in his name. So we know already that there's good news to come, that the mission that Jesus sent them on is a success, that this is something that is going to make an impact and that this is something that the disciples will rejoice and even in trials and difficulty as they share, will profit from and will grow from and will mature from. This is such a stark contrast to what was happening or maybe what really didn't happen in Nazareth. And so what a joy, even as a reader of the Gospel of Mark, to see how the power of God can shape and empower and change people out of that simple desire to obey, which we saw is the heart of what it means for God to provide for our needs, that we trust him and that we obey him. Well, so this is so amazing. This is so shocking that those then are coming to hear about this. They're coming up with theories of their own. So there's three options that has come to surface, and this repeats itself even later in Mark. That who is this Jesus that could send out these pairs of missionaries and do these incredible things? Well, the first name that came up was John the Baptist, resurrected. What do we know about John the Baptist right now? Well, through Mark 1, we saw that John the Baptist is, you know, kind of loopy. He's a little different He dresses different, he eats different, he comes from the desert, and he preaches a message of repentance. But it's not just that message. He also is somebody that is setting the scene for someone else greater to come. But see, we haven't heard much about him since. And so while it might connect that it's John the Baptist, maybe, I I have a question about this resurrection deal. What do you mean John the Baptist resurrected? Are we missing something here? Well, we're going to see in a minute. The second person that came up is Elijah. And Elijah should be a name of expectation for the Jewish people. In fact, he is one of the people that the Old Testament prophesied would return to make the way for the Messiah. Malachi speaks of this in chapter 3 and chapter 4 that Elijah will come back first. 
before the end. We also remember that Elijah raised the dead, that Elijah won the battle against the prophets of Baal, rendered them all useless because God, Yahweh, is by far superior than all idols and smaller g gods. We even see in 2 Kings that his spirit come to rest in Elisha, who came after him. So this idea that maybe Jesus is Elijah come again, that makes a lot of sense too. Well, there's a third person that came up. Maybe he is a coming again of a prophet of old. You know, prophets are special people in the Old Testament. They're mouthpieces of God that spoke truth, that held God's people accountable, that warned, that predicted, and that also pointed people back to the Lord in obedience to the law and to his will. But see, the prophets have been silent for a little while by this point. So if Jesus was a coming again of a prophet of old, that would be exciting as well. For Jesus to have been John the Baptist in some way that we don't yet understand, or to be Elijah, or to be a prophet of old, any of them, that would be amazing. And that would substantiate why through him, through his name, and through his message that the disciples were able to do great things. Well, being that it came in through Herod's year, he had his thoughts about who this is. And we find then in verse 16, this is who Herod thinks he is. John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Ding, ding, ding. Now we know what happened to John the Baptist. And this is the segue that then leads us to the next section because we need to find out why. You can't just drop John the Baptist has been beheaded by this guy and not tell us about it. Although, here's the thing. Mark could have not told us about it. Mark is very succinct and simple in his writing. Everything is fast-paced. Everything is turned the corner. Everything is now, now, now. So he could have skipped right to the next section in verse 30 and not have had 17 to 29. He could have done this, and it would have been very marking for that to be the case. But he did put in that story which is why it's important for us to look at that. But we have to see that that story is of secondary importance. But the first needs to be about John the Baptist. You know, if you look at John the Baptist and what he represented, sure, he was eccentric. Sure, he was different. Sure, he maybe rubbed people the wrong way. But did he do anything that could have warranted him being beheaded? at a relatively early age as he is? See, we don't know exactly how old he is, but we know that he's a contemporary of Jesus. So if John the Baptist has been faithful, if he's been calling people to repentance, if he's been doing God's work, if he's been making the way for God's kingdom, isn't it untimely for him to be killed in this way? Isn't it strange that already Herod could consider that he may be coming back in a resurrected form to be Christ? He's the same age as Christ. Same life stage. 
We're not talking about Elijah from hundreds of years ago or any of the prophets of old. You know, it really makes you wonder and question about our perception of time and what should happen versus God's. Whether it's fair, whether it's right, whether it's too soon. I think that's the human condition, isn't it? That we have plans and ideas of our own of how things can and should be, how a life well lived can look like. There's very simple truths of parents shouldn't outlive their kids. It makes you sad when they do. This week, I I really uh, came to grips with this um, in, in a unique and personal way. So came to find out that uh, a friend of ours uh, who uh, has, is from New York, but uh, we had met when I was pastoring at his church uh, in West L.A., um, well, he came down with a heart attack on Father's Day, and, and that was already shocking enough because he's my age. So he came down with a heart attack on Father's Day, and he was the least, the least likely person that you can imagine. I mean, the guy was like practically a vegan. He like exercised all the time. He ran, he hiked, he biked, he did everything, you know, footmobile, everything. He just was very active. He ate super well. He led his family even in that way of just living this very simple, outdoorsy, campy life, which I, I don't relate to personally. But he had a heart attack on Father's Day, you know, a week later. So that was hard. A week later, we, we start getting updates that, you know what, he's not coming out of this coma that he's been in since the heart attack. And we're like, what is going on? And then earlier this week, they pulled life support because there was no resuscitation. There was no hope, apparently, for him physically. And then just a couple days ago, he passed away. And now his funeral is in New York this Saturday. You know, it could be all Christian, all trusting in the gospel, all I depend on God, all you want. But when you hear about a story like that of someone you used to know leaving behind two kids the same ages as Rachel and Tobias, there's a sense of how does this fit? How is this right? How is this okay? And, and it's not surprising, even they're believers, that if for a moment they just shake their fist at God, how can it be? My children are now going to be without their father for the formative and the rest of their lives, the years that matter most. You know, I'm the family pastor. I talk to the dads and I say, dads, it's your job to lead your family, to disciple your kids. To this family, they can be as faithful as they want to be. Their dad is not going to be there. How does this all fit? Well, it comes down to us seeing things from God's perspective and finding our refuge and solace not primarily in our circumstances, but in his goodness and his sovereignty and his power. We'll come back to this. Let's go on to verses 17 to 20. This is where we're going to jump into what is happening in Herod's home. Verse 17, For it was Herod who has sent and seized John, and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, 
because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So the fact that verse 17 began with four is that this section is going to explain how and why John the Baptist came to be beheaded in the hands of Herod Antipas. Now, even historically, there's different angles to see this. Mark tells us one particular version that is connected to his wife, Herodias. But Josephus, the Jewish historian, also tells us in the first century that the reason why Herod Antipas beheaded John the Baptist was more for political reasons, because he was getting popular, because there was a possible revolt that could come up from his followers. And so Herod Antipas, in being a political ruler over these two areas, he needed to do what would help to keep control and to keep peace, and that's why he beheaded John the Baptist. Now, the two reasons actually don't conflict. One is more in the heart and in the home. The other is from the outside, probably what is more expedient and pragmatic for him politically. But both are true. And as we know, the things that we do in our lives, it comes out of our heart, doesn't it? So I actually, I appreciate Mark's angle of looking into the heart, the issues in which Herod struggled with, the forces and the people he had to deal with in his home, and how he made his decisions. And so it doesn't help that when there's so many Herods that his wife's name is Herodias. I know, I thought the exact same thing. You should just kind of give him all letters like A, B, C, D. That would help. That would actually be easier. But to explain a little bit of where Herodias comes from, it's very complicated and, and probably a little disturbing. But Herodias was previously married to Herod Antipas's half-brother, who was also called Herod, Herod Philip. So she left him to marry him, just like Herod Antipas left his wife to marry her. That, by the way, got him in a lot of trouble later on because Herod Antipas's ex-wife was this king who then battled him and defeated him shortly after this happened. So what Herod Antipas did is he caused the circumstances, she caused the circumstances and made decisions so that he married his own sister-in-law. The Bible speaks against things like this. Well, John the Baptist, if he was going to represent God in any way, in his righteousness and holiness, and he isn't somebody that seems to be afraid of much, he has been in Herod Antipas's ear, telling him, you know what, king, this is not okay. You can't do this. This is not right. This is not honoring to God. You know the law. You know that in Leviticus 18, it says, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife. You know that in Leviticus 20, 
that it says, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. There's even judgment to this, that they shall be childless. So what was John the Baptist doing? Simply being a messenger, being a prophet, in speaking truth to Herod Antipas. Now, you would think that it's Herod that gets mad, but actually it's his wife that gets really mad. And we find this out in verses 19 to 20, that there's now this trouble brewing in the home, but it's really the wife with the full steam of, full head of steam that is wanting to come up with a response. You see, the thing with Herod is that he's a political ruler, so wannabe messiahs and trouble rousers are probably a dime a dozen for him. So while he didn't believe in John the Baptist in his message, he didn't seek him out or follow him as far as we can see. He just found him to be curious and interesting. Kind of a sideshow that livens up the culture and the community. He actually thought that, you know what, this guy, I don't know what he's doing wrong, but why don't people like him? He, to me, is someone that loves God. He, to me, is holy and righteous and pure. I don't have a problem with him. I just pay attention to like, you know, 10% of what he says and I don't do it, but I don't have a problem with him. But his wife is really, really mad. So because he's the ruler, he's the one that can keep his head or lose his head. Well, he's not going to execute someone for no reason. So up until this point, he's been protecting John the Baptist. He's not gone ahead and used a sword on him. But it's causing tension in the home. I can imagine what the dinner table looks like with Herod and Herodias. How can you let this guy continue to talk? He's ruining our reputation. He's making my friends gossip. Everywhere I go, people are looking at me funny. And Herod's just like, oh, I mean, he's just talking. Doesn't bother me. But it bothered her. But until a different circumstances came up where she's able to create something, there was nothing that she could do. And that's what we see happen starting from verses 21 to 28. Let me go ahead and, and read the first three verses of that section for us. So here it is, verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. See, this was a special occasion. Jewish people in their culture don't usually throw birthday parties for themselves at that time. It was seen as something that took away from God. So it was inappropriate to, to celebrate your own birthday to that extent. But see, he was a politician, and he was a ruler, and this was a chance for him to rally and bring his people together. So you could see by the guest list that this wasn't primarily a family affair, that this guest list had the who's who of his rule. All of the key people, all of the decision makers, all of the leaders and military commanders that would serve under him, that he needed to lead, but also he needed them to be loyal. And so this birthday was to draw attention to himself, that in 
blessing them and entreating them and and entertaining them that he would keep their allegiance, if not only for a little while longer. So here's something then that comes up in the party, starting in verse 22. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Now, commentators have said different things about exactly what Herodias' daughter is doing. But before we even get into that, that would make this person his stepdaughter, right? But here's the thing. It it doesn't have to get sinister. She's described as a girl. So if you just even take it at face value without implying anything, this could just be a proud father that saw his daughter do something that he liked and, and found enjoyable and that his guests also liked and were pleased by. And then he just tells her, this teenage daughter maybe, you know what, whatever you want, I'll get it for you. Whatever you want, it's yours. I think we can relate to that. It's not about Herod doing something that was totally nonsensical or doing something completely outrageous. If it's as simple as his daughter doing something in front of this party that honors him, that delights him, then his response kind of makes sense. So whatever you want, half my kingdom, it's a figure of speech, half my kingdom, it's yours. I'll give you the world, baby girl, whatever you want. But see, it starts to get a little weird after this because it's hard for me to imagine that what she asks for is actually what she wants. Let's go ahead and keep looking here. Well, she doesn't know what she wants. She has it all, right? She's the daughter of a ruler. So in verse 24, this happens. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? Right? It's good to ask your mom for that kind of stuff. And she said, the head of John the Baptist. (laughs) Wow. Verse 25. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This is some excellent coaching here by the mom. I'm even trying to imagine, you know, this young girl saying, oh, yeah, uh, uh, what do I want again? Oh, I I want the severed head of a grown man on a plate. Thank you. Please, Dad. But see, this was Herodias' opportunity as the paragraph began. And she seized it. She took it. She got specific. She knew what she wanted. Her request revealed the anger and the hatred and the sinfulness of her heart towards John the Baptist, who did what? Call out for repentance and return to God. John the Baptist called out sin. Her response was, I want to kill you. You know, we might not be so drastic in our everyday responses, but sometimes I think it helps for us to evaluate our hearts that when God tells us to do certain things is our immediate reflex. Maybe not, I want to kill you, 
but I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to trust you. I'm not going to obey you, God. See, I think that's where we find some commonality there. She just pretty much took it to the extreme because at the end she wanted to end John the Baptist. So if you're going to end him, you don't just block him, right? You kill him. And that's what she requested through her daughter. Verse 26. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So we saw the struggle in his heart. He was exceedingly sorry. The description is there to intensify purposefully. Exceedingly sorry. Not a sorry, not sorry. Not a sorry, oh well. Exceedingly sorry because he knew that this was not right. In fact, this was wrong and this was sin. So as the ruler, as the father, as the husband, he had a decision to make. He had two things that then weighed into his process. The first is this. There is a cultural pressure that at that time, you know, keeping promises is really a big deal. You know, Jacob and Esau thing. You know, I mean, when when people make a promise, you keep it. So that meant something to him as the dad to keep promises. But the second thing is this. He had these honored guests that were there to receive his hospitality, his generosity, his provision. How is he going to look in front of them? And remember, the purpose of this gathering wasn't just to schmooze, wasn't just to have a meal. It was to bolster him. It was to grow his reputation. It was to connect and network so that there'd be greater allegiance. It was to show that he is the one that they need to continue to follow and give their lives to, at least around here. So why are both of those reasons factors? One, yes, it's important to keep promises, but look, you're the dad. If your daughter goes, hey, can you kill someone for me, dad? I know that culturally, you know, maybe there's a little bit of a distance, you know, generationally or culturally or how we do things, but I think if the dad says, no, I will not kill someone for you, keep dancing, that's, that's great, do that, give you something else. I don't think that's unreasonable. I don't think that's a dad being a promise breaker in the sense that would disqualify him simply as a person. But see, the second thing, then you can see rises to the surface. It matters what people thought of him. 
It really matters that if he says, I'm going to do this, and he's going to do this for his family, that doesn't matter what it is, I will execute the power and authority given to me to make it happen, even if it means that someone who I don't have a problem with, someone that I find maybe annoying but not troublesome, I will kill him. Because otherwise, don't mess with me. Danny Aiken wrote this in describing what Herod was going through. He said this, Herod feared displeasing his wife and losing face with man more than he feared God. Herod feared displeasing his wife and losing face with man more than he feared God. And so that we see that John the Baptist, in simply obeying Christ, in simply speaking truth, in simply calling out sin, and to urge repentance, there was a cost to his obedience. Here's what happened to this messenger from God who was miraculously born to his parents, Zachariah and Elizabeth. They were parents of old age and have had kids. In Matthew 11, Jesus even called him the greatest man who's ever lived. And John the Baptist knew his role. It wasn't about him, but in Mark 1, he thought this about himself, that there is someone coming that is mightier than him, the strap of whose sandals he is not worthy to stoop down and untie. He just wanted to come to be the red carpet that is rolled out for the Messiah, the King of Kings, and he obeyed God in that. But there was a cost. See, he was innocent, but he was killed. He was not deceptive or duplicitous, but he was judged. At the end, Jesus is compared to him. Jesus is connected to him, and that makes sense because he came to make the way for Jesus. But why does this passage matter to us? Why does it matter to Mark? It's because it shows us that if this can happen to the one that comes before, that's making the way, that's setting the pace, that's preparing for the Messiah, what do you think is going to happen to the Messiah? It doesn't matter what things Jesus can do. It doesn't matter if he raises the dead. It doesn't matter if he dies without guilt or sin on a cross. Because if John the Baptist would be killed in this way, what are we going to expect to happen to Jesus? See, Jesus came proclaiming truth. Jesus came proclaiming repentance and following into the kingdom of God. 
Jesus came calling out the religious establishment and those with power pointing out their hearts and the sin that lies within. So if this happens to the minor guy, the setup guy, what do you think will happen to Jesus? I think the readers start getting it. And by this point, the readers know as well what happened to Jesus. But they're able to connect and see, you know what? This is how things were meant to be because God is sovereign and powerful. This is how the Messiah was going to lead and to be victorious and to conquer, not through military means, not through well-planned strategies, not through winsome messages, but through surrendering and giving his life for truth and obedience to God. He was betrayed by powerful personalities just like John the Baptist. And he was executed, bottom line, because the forces that drove politics, religion, and morality ganged up against him. It wasn't fair. It wasn't right. But it was necessary. And it was always the plan. It is in the Gospel of Mark that we find a unique description where Jesus says that he came to give his life as a ransom for many. John the Baptist shows us how it's going to go. But secondarily, when you look at the life and the home of Herod Antipas, it makes you realize that, you know, when we're up here and we're welcoming you guys, we're saying good morning, good morning, disciple makers and everyday missionaries, you realize that just because you're not on the field doing something different, that your everyday struggles and those struggles beginning in the home are vital and essential to following Christ. The sacrifices that you make in the name of obedience really begins with the little things in the home. Look at the dysfunctions between husband and wife, husband and stepdaughter, brother-in-law, sister-in-law. There was no trust. There was no holiness. There was an image of perfection and power, but behind the closed doors where God sees the heart anyway, it was a mess to where even this young girl could be manipulated to collaborate in this sin. That's not okay for us as disciple makers and everyday missionaries. We don't have to be in Arizona or Taiwan to start fixing things at home. And it begins with simply having our ears and our hearts open to the truth and what is good and repenting from sin and teaching our kids to do the same so that they can love Jesus. See, Herod Antipas was trapped between doing what is right and what is pragmatic to help his reputation in government and in the home. But all the trouble started in the home. So that's where we all need to begin. See, if we're on mission, we need to dive in and look in. Then if we expand that priority, that's where 
being a part of a church family and being a member of a spiritual family, it makes a difference. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters that are supposed to exhort and encourage each other in the way that John the Baptist would have. Now, things aren't always going to make sense to us. People passing in untimely ways, relationships not working out, children that go astray, work that doesn't pan out, circumstances we didn't plan. But at the end, if we're trusting in God and we look in, into our homes and into our lives and then bringing that back to our church family, then we are on mission with Jesus. It matters. All of this matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for showing us through the faithfulness and obedience of John the Baptist, God, that there is great honor and that there is great value in simply obeying you and trusting in your timing. John the Baptist came. He did his part all the way to the end. But God, all of this sets up the glorious work of your son. And then the death that he suffered, but the glorious resurrection that came after. God, that we can belong to you. Thank you, Lord, for being in control of all of this, God, for our good and for your glory. And we do want to pray, Father, for all of our homes, all of our marriages, all of our parenting relationships. Father, may you write those and center them on the truth and the beauty and the goodness of the gospel. Remind us of who we are in our identity as your children, as people who are forgiven because of Christ, as people that are dependent on grace, as people that are objects of mercy. Remind us of that. Help us to take that intentionally into our relationships at home. We thank you, Lord. We keep praying, Father, for the YSMP team and the Taiwan team as they go out for us and before us. God, that they would carry this message with joy and with demonstration in their words and their actions. And we look forward to having them back. We look forward so much to when we can see them again. Be with them, Lord, and be with us as we pray for them. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.